Welcome to Then and Now with Ed Stevens, President of the International Preterist Association. Then and Now is a weekly podcast designed to explore past fulfillment of Bible prophecy in order to equip us for guiding the church in its ongoing reform. And now, with today's message, here's Ed Stevens. Thanks for joining us here in our continuing study of the biblical book of Romans from a full preterist perspective. Last time we looked at the question about what is the sin that is mentioned in Romans chapter 6 verse 1. We scanned all 39 verses of Romans which use the word sin and found numerous exceptions to Sam Frost's theory that the presence of the definite article automatically meant that it was referring to the specific sin of Adam. We noticed that the presence or absence of the definite article, the, in connection with the word sin, was not consistent in the Greek. Sometimes the phrase, the sin, was referring to the sin of Adam, and other times it was referring to generic sin or sinfulness of all mankind. The same goes for those occurrences of sin without the definite article. Therefore, the presence of the definite article in the phrase, the sin, cannot be used as proof that it is only referring to the specific sin of Adam, and never to any other kind of sin. In this session, I had originally planned to study the subject of baptism as it is dealt with in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. However, this week I received an email from a listener who wanted my evaluation of a lesson on Romans chapter 1, verse 20 that he had heard recently. Since that question directly relates to our interpretation of the book of Romans, I decided to hold off on the study of baptism until we deal with this new question on the meaning of the two words creation and made as they're used in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Next time, Lord willing, we will look at the place of water baptism in the kingdom today, after the arrival of the eternal kingdom in AD 70. Before we get into our study, let's ask God's blessing. The Most High God, who alone dwells in unapproachable light and glory, we exalt you and adore you for creating us and choosing us to be your servants and using us to help others be reconciled to you and be blessed by you. Be with us in this study of Paul's letter to the Roman saints. Help us understand it and properly apply it to our lives today in your kingdom. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we're going to be dealing with the question of what creation is Paul talking about here in the book of Romans. Since this question about the identity of the creation mentioned in Romans is related to the whole debate between the two major resurrection views within preterism, it might be helpful for some of our listeners who are new to that discussion if we defined some of our terms and explained what the various views teach. All of our listeners are probably aware that I hold to the individual body view of the resurrection, which teaches that the disembodied souls of the dead saints 
were raised out of Hades at the Parousia and given their new immortal bodies with which to dwell in heaven forever afterwards. The other major resurrection view within Preterism is the collective body view, which teaches that a collective body of believers, or the church, was raised out of Old Covenant Judaism at the Parousia to share in the new life of the collective body of Christ, which is the eternal kingdom. I've been challenged on my use of the label collective body view. Those who take that view prefer the label corporate body view instead. However, that is redundant. The word corporate comes from the Latin word corpus, which means body, or corporare, which means to form into a body. Since the word corporate already means body, it is redundant to use it with the word body in the phrase corporate body view. That is like saying they believe in the body-body view. Obviously redundant. Sounds like a bodily dichotomy of some sort. Instead of a body with two heads, it would imply a head with two bodies, a body-body view. That is why I prefer the label collective body, because it is a much more distinctive label which more accurately describes what they actually teach. They believe the body that was raised in AD 70 was a collective body of believers, not a body body of believers. That may seem like a trivial point, but terminology is important. Clear communications demand clearly defined terms. We need to use labels that clearly and accurately describe our views, as well as point out the differences between those views. The label corporate body is too ambiguous, nebulous, and redundant, especially for preterists outside the USA, for whom English is a second language, and especially if they come from one of the Latin-based languages, which defines the word corporate as meaning body. This body-body label would be confusing and ambiguous to them, so I have chosen to label it as the collective body view since that is much more clear, accurate, and descriptive of what they actually teach. We might also need to explain what the covenant creationist view is all about. They take the position that the creation of the heavens and earth that is spoken of in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is merely an allegory about the creation of the nation of Israel when Moses led them out of Egypt and across the Red Sea. They do not believe Genesis 1 and 2 is talking about the creation of the universe, nor about the creation of the first two human beings on the planet. They do not think that Adam and Eve were the first two human beings ever created. They think that Adam and Eve's story was simply an allegorical representation of the covenant relationship between God and the nation of Israel. They see the first 11 chapters of Genesis as non-literal, and non-historical in the traditional definition of those terms. They adamantly reject the ideas of a young earth, a literal six-day creation, and a global flood in Noah's day. They instead yank Genesis chapters 1 through 11 
out of the whole historical and cosmological discussion and throw it into an allegorical arena as merely a figurative description of the formation of Israel at the Exodus. Well, like I did when I first heard of covenant creationism, you're probably asking yourself, where in the world did they get that idea from? Critics of the covenant creationist view, like Michael Bennett and others, who have critically analyzed covenant creationism, have shown that the covenant creationist took the valid typological similarities between the creation of the original world in Adam and the creation of the new world in Christ and went to an invalid allegorical extreme with it. They were not satisfied with the typology between the first Adam and the last Adam, so they went way beyond that to make the first Adam into an allegory of covenantal man representing the nation of Israel under the law of Moses. This means that they do not see Adam as a literal physical human being who was the physical type of the spiritual man, Christ Jesus. They instead see Adam as allegorical of the old covenant man, the nation of Israel, the body of Moses, in contrast to the new covenant man, the church or the body of Christ. Just as the old covenant man was created at the exodus out of Egypt, so the new covenant man was created at the cross and resurrection of Jesus or at Pentecost. And that's what they basically are saying about the Genesis account. They take it as an allegory of God's relationship with Israel. There are many problems with their covenantal allegory approach to Genesis, but the main point that we need to note here about it is that they are ripping the creation of the physical universe and the global flood of Noah's day totally out of our Bibles and asserting that Genesis is only an allegory of the formation of Israel at the Exodus. The reason I bring the covenant creationist view into the picture here is because some of the collective body guys, like Larry Siegel and others, are teaching some things which are very compatible with covenant creationism, even though they deny that they are covenant creationist. For instance, a well-known preterist leader who happens to teach the collective body view of the resurrection in his recent study on Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, took the position that the usage of the word creation in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, is referring to the creation of the nation of Israel at the Exodus, and not to the creation of the universe. Here is what he said in his lesson on Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. He quoted Ephesians 2, verse 10, which reads, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The word workmanship in Ephesians 2.10 is from the Greek word poiema, which means a product, thing that is created or made, or workmanship. And then he says, I find it interesting that poiema is only used here in Ephesians 2 verse 10 and in Romans chapter 1 verse 20, which reads, For since the creation of the world, 
His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. And then he goes on to say, I don't think Paul is talking about the physical creation in this verse. The context here leads me to believe that he is talking about Israel. Israel is the creation. The Greek word used here for creation is katesis. So it is possible that creation in the text of Romans chapter 1 verse 20 is not referring to the material creation, but to the creation of the covenant people Israel. He says, Romans 1 verse 20 speaks of God's physical people Israel, and Ephesians 2 verse 10 speaks of God's spiritual people, the new creation. Well, that's the end of the quote from that dear brother who takes that position. And here's my response to his comments. If Paul was indeed talking about the formation of Israel as a nation at the Exodus in Romans chapter 1 verse 20, why doesn't he just come right out and say it? Why all the veiled language here? Why doesn't he say, since the Exodus, or since the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, or since their entrance into the land of Canaan? Why did he use language that normally referred to the creation of the universe in Genesis? Furthermore, if Romans 1.20 was referring to the creation of the cosmos in Genesis, and applying it to the creation of the nation of Israel, that means that Genesis has to be talking about the creation of the nation of Israel as well, and not talking about the creation of the universe. Here is the logic that he seems to be following here. If A equals B and A equals C, then B equals C. Notice he says in his logic here that the creation of the cosmos, mentioned in Romans 1 verse 20, is equal to the creation of Israel. And he also implies here that the creation of the cosmos, mentioned in Romans 1 20, is the same creation that is mentioned in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the creation of the heavens and earth. That's what Paul certainly seems to be implying because he uses that very language, creation of the cosmos, which is a reference to Genesis 1 and 2, the creation of the heavens and earth. So by using that logic of A equals B, A equals C, therefore B equals C, uh, we would have to say then that the Genesis account of the creation of the heavens and earth is talking about the creation of Israel as a nation. And that is exactly what covenant creationists are teaching. No wonder the covenant creationists are so cozy with the collective body view. The collective body view is making it easy for them to argue their case for covenant creationism. We can see that right here in this dear brother who denies that he's a covenant creationist, yet he's teaching the very thing that leads right into covenant creationism. Even though that dear brother has repeatedly disavowed any connections between his collective body view and covenant creationism, we see here in his comments an unmistakable connection between the two views. We have to wonder how he missed that connection. 
Moreover, if creation of the cosmos in Romans chapter 1 verse 20 is definitely referring to the creation of the heavens and earth in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, like Paul seems to be indicating, then it opens up the possibility, which the covenant creationists fully exploit, that every reference to the creation of the heavens and earth, or cosmos, throughout the whole Bible, is referring to the creation of Israel as a nation. How can this dear brother consistently escape the covenant creationist implications of that? He has stuck his foot right in their bear trap. Let's look at the text in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Notice the words here in the lesson outline that I have read bold-faced and underlined. These words I want to particularly focus on, the red, bold-faced, and underlined text here in these verses from Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Notice it says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Now, in the context, Paul appears to be talking about the Gentiles from the creation of the world not having an excuse for their immorality and idolatry because in the creation around them, they could see that there was a God and what his nature was really like. And so that seems to be what Paul is saying, yet this dear brother is saying that, oh no, that's not at all what Paul is saying. He's talking about the creation of the nation of Israel, not the creation of the world. So let's exchange those red, bold-faced, and underlined words, the creation of the world, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, and replace them with creation of Israel in the verse, and then read it again. Romans 1.20 then would read this way, For since the creation of Israel, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Now that's the covenant creation version of that verse. Do you notice any problems here? We certainly do. First of all, it means that Paul was teaching that the invisible attributes, eternal power, and divine nature of God could not be clearly perceived by anyone until the nation of Israel was created at the Exodus. That means that no one, not even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, could understand the invisible attributes, eternal power, and divine nature of God until the Exodus. No one could really understand who God is and what he is really like until the nation of Israel was formed. Is that what Paul is really teaching here in Romans chapter 1? Of course not. In the context, Paul is talking about the Gentile nations having no excuse for their immorality and idolatry, because the invisible attributes, eternal power, and divine nature of God was clearly discernible in the natural world around them from the very beginning of creation. The Gentile world never had an excuse, not even before Israel was a nation, because the universe around them clearly revealed the one true God and his divine attributes. 
So the covenant creation and collective body views turn Paul's argument against the immoral and idolatrous Gentiles on its head. It ends up giving the Gentile nations an excuse for their immorality and idolatry until the nation of Israel came into being at the Exodus. Do you see the problem here for the collective body view and the covenant creationist view? Nor does it help their argument any when they assert that the word made, in the Greek is poiema, here in Romans chapter 1 verse 20, is referring to the making of Israel into a nation at the Exodus. Here is how they understand the verse, Romans chapter 1 verse 20, with that meaning of poiema plugged into the text. For since the creation of Israel, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what God has done with Israel, not what God has made in the natural creation, but instead what God has done with Israel in history, so that they are without excuse. That's the covenant creationist view of this, and it seems to be the view that this dear brother is also taking who says that he's not a covenant creationist, but only a collective body advocate. That particular rendering of Romans chapter 1 verse 20 turns the meaning and intent of Paul's words here totally upside down. The context is very clear that Paul is talking about the Gentile world perceiving the nature of God ever since the natural world was created, so that they never had an excuse for their immorality and idolatry. This verse cannot be talking about the formation of the nation of Israel at the Exodus unless we want to accuse Paul of giving the Gentiles an excuse for their wickedness before the foundation of the nation of Israel. How do you think Paul would feel about that kind of an argument? I suspect he would see it as a clear example of the untaught and unstable twisting his inspired writings to their own destruction. As Peter says about Paul's writings being misunderstood by some in that day in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 16. But wait, there's more. Since this dear brother asserted that the word creation, or catesis, here in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, is a reference to Israel instead of to the world or the created world, it means that he has to translate the verse in the following way to be consistent. It should read, For since the Israel of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Now, you're probably saying, huh? What did you just say? For since the Israel of the world, his invisible attributes? That makes no sense at all. It disrupts the whole flow of thought to read Israel into the text there at that point in replacement of the word creation. It says in the text, for since the creation of the world... But this dear brother wants us to believe that the word creation should be replaced with the word Israel, so that it reads, for since the Israel of the world. 
But that translation makes total nonsense out of this verse. He has gone from a veiled reference to Israel to total confusion. Inserting Israel in place of creation here would totally disrupt Paul's flow of thought. He would be better off taking the word world as a reference to Israel rather than the word creation. At least that would make some sense out of the verse, even though it is the wrong sense. But he does not even do that. The only word he attaches the meaning of Israel to is the word creation. Furthermore, in his comparison of Ephesians 2 verse 10 with Romans chapter 1 verse 20, he noted that these two texts are the only two places in the New Testament which use the Greek noun poiema, translated as workmanship in Ephesians 2 verse 10, or what has been made in Romans chapter 1 verse 20. He claimed that the workmanship, or what has been made, in these two texts, is a reference to Israel. Let's replace those words with Israel in these two texts and see how they read. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his Israel, instead of workmanship. For we are his Israel, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And then in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, it would read this way, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through Israel. Not what has been made, but understood through Israel, so that they are without excuse. Well, even without looking at the context, it is easy to see how disruptive this word substitution really is. It would mean that Paul, or the Holy Spirit, has deliberately thrown a curveball to his Gentile readers at Rome. He worded this so obscurely that only a fellow Jewish Christian who understood Paul's code language would have had a chance of grasping it. And even that is doubtful. No commentary throughout church history has noticed that meaning until Max King came along and shoehorned it into the text where it obviously does not belong. However, both the covenant creation and collective body views desperately need that meaning to be there in order to support their views. But neither of these two uses of the word poiema in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, and Ephesians 2, verse 10, are referring to Israel as the creation or workmanship of God. Romans 1, 20 is simply referring to those things God made at the creation of the world in the beginning, while Ephesians 2, verse 10 is referring to the church as being God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So, although it is true that Israel is the creation or workmanship of God, that is not what these two texts are talking about, especially in their context. And these are the only two occurrences of the word poiema in the New Testament. So, just because Romans chapter 1 verse 20 can be interpreted that way, does not at all mean that it must be interpreted that way. 
That is a form of argumentation that all the cult groups use to establish their heretical doctrines. The question is not what does our paradigm need it to mean or what can it be twisted to mean, but rather what does it actually mean in its original historical context. Context is king here as always. The Bereans did not superimpose their preconceived traditional interpretation upon Paul's preaching. They did not push their own Judaic or rabbinical interpretations into Scripture, but rather pulled their interpretations out of Scripture itself. They went into Scripture to see what it actually taught, rather than bringing their own paradigm to the study and forcing Scripture to agree with their predetermined interpretation. This is the problem with both covenant creationism and the collective body view. They both assume there is a covenantal or collective body built into every sociological and eschatological text, and that they have no obligation to prove that it is there, but instead merely to show how that text fits into their overall covenantal or collective body framework. However, that is assuming what they need to prove. It's a logical fallacy in hermeneutics. They're assuming what they need to prove. They need to prove that the covenantal or collective body concept is actually there before they start interpreting the text in a covenantal or collective body way. In summarizing the problems that we have just noticed here, one of our listeners made the following very perceptive comment. He says, Have his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, only been clearly seen since the creation of Israel? Weren't those attributes also obvious in the creation event? And if the words, they are without excuse, only refers to Israel, as this dear brother has implied, then is Romans 3 verse 23 also only about Israel? If so, that would totally jettison the keynote text used for total depravity which is the idea in Romans 3, verse 23, that no one is without excuse. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. No one is without excuse. And if this phrase, they are without excuse, only pertains to Israel, it does not apply to anyone else after AD 70. And that would put us on the hyper-cessationist bandwagon with Chris Camilo. Do you see the danger that this dear brother is pointing out here? It implies that those words there about not having excuse no longer apply to anyone because they only applied to Israel before 70 AD. That's a very dangerous position to take. And yet this dear brother doesn't realize the danger he's put himself in by taking that position. Well, we're going to say a lot more about the meaning of the word creation when we get to Romans chapter 8, where that word creation plays a much bigger role in the whole discussion about their adoption as sons, the redemption of their bodies, and being set free from slavery to corruption. But since it was mentioned in chapter 1, 
we needed to be somewhat familiar with the word creation and how it's being used by Paul so that when we get to chapter 8, it won't be such a new concept for us. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to deal with the subject of baptism since it is referenced right here in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Well, that will do it for this session. Hope that clarified a few things for you and helped you understand what the covenant creationist view is all about and the collective body view. Hope that will give you a little bit better, clearer understanding of what they're saying and what they mean by it. If not, uh, don't hesitate to email me with some questions about it, and I will be glad to get you up to speed on what those two different views are teaching and how I differ from it. Well, that'll do it for this time. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Then and Now with Ed Stevens. We would love to hear from you. Send your email to preterist1 at preterist.org. Our website has many great articles, books, and audio-video resources. The address is www.preterist.org. This teaching ministry depends on your donations, and you share in all the good fruit that we produce. To make a donation or support monthly, simply go to our website, www.preterist.org, or call us at 814-368-6578. Join us again next time for Then and Now, where we study the past to shape a better future.